This month, there was a news story that caught my eye. I, I try to keep up with current church happenings and what's going on in our world. And some of you heard that uh, Eugene Peterson, the author of the Message Bible, maybe you heard this, but um, he didn't write the Message Bible, obviously. The Bible's God's Word, but he did the paraphrase, right? Which is kind of a loose rendering of the words of Scripture. Um, he is... He's 84 years old, and he is kind of retiring from his speaking, preaching, teaching, writing ministry. He's kind of at the end of that. Uh, and he was, uh, he was doing an interview, and it was kind of, I think, just a, a routine interview. And the interviewer asked him uh, about his, his experience with uh, homosexual people in his church. He was, uh, he was a pastor, I believe, in Maryland. Christ our King Presbyterian Church for 29 years. And he said, I haven't had a lot of experience with it. He said, and I quote, several people were lesbians, but it didn't make a big deal about it. And uh, they talked about some musicians that were gay and, and kind of went on. And then the interviewer asked him, if you were pastoring today and a gay couple in your church who were Christians of good faith asked you to perform their same-sex wedding ceremony, is that something you would do? And Peterson gave a one-word answer. He said, yes. Now, that shook throughout the church. And the people who publish his books were considering whether to keep selling his books. And then, the next day, he released a longer statement published in the Washington Post, and he retracted his statement. He said, I quote, that's not something I would do out of respect to the congregation, the larger church body, and the historic Christian view and teaching on marriage. That said, I would still love such a couple as their pastor. And then he said, and I quote, to clarify, I affirmed a biblical view of marriage, one man to one woman. I affirm a biblical view of everything. So in a 48-hour span, you have a well-respected author and teacher saying, yes, I, I, I do that. I would perform that ceremony. And then a little while later saying, no, I wouldn't. I affirm what the church affirms. And that leaves us scratching our heads saying, well, well which one is it? And how could this well-respected man not be sure on his first answer, retract it, and then give this other answer? And he's displeasing two different groups of people. But my point is not to preach on that particular topic. My point is to say, in our culture, when you speak to someone about your faith, it's becoming increasingly difficult not to face current cultural issues, right? When you have conversations with neighbors, with friends, with family, these are the hot-button issues that get brought up. And, and, and in some sense, I, I have sympathy for Peterson because he was, he's retiring, and he probably thought, I'll never have to deal with any of these hot issues. I'm, I'm going out, you know, on a high note. And then instead he goes out on this note. And I'm not saying we should have a book burning. I didn't pull my books off the shelf that I have of Peterson's. I haven't gotten rid of those. I'm not saying that. My point is just to say, we are living in a culture where if you try to share the love of Jesus, you've got to work through some of these hot issues, and they're almost like landmines ready to blow up. What are you going to say? And, 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 and the problem with it is, when we're, we're faced with two different uh, ways of, two different views of it, 
And neither of them are positions I want to be in. It's like you can either be, A, one of those loving, tolerant church people who have no issue with, with any form of marriage to homosexuals, or you can be over here and be, you know, the intolerant, bigoted, hateful churchgoer Christian, and you're like, well, I don't want to be either of those. You know, I, I, I don't want to approve of what the Bible disapproves, and I, and, I, and I don't want to be over here and go against the Bible. I want to be in the middle somewhere, and, and, and the culture is increasingly saying, no, you can't do that. You don't get to do that. I want to look at Acts 23. I want to look at the Apostle Paul on trial and try to learn from his way of handling being under fire for your convictions. So please turn to Acts 23. I believe, I believe that issues of morality end up being gospel issues. I mean, maybe some of you are wondering, why did you use that issue of Peterson? Well, it is current. And it is a sense of the culture saying, what are you going to do, Peterson? But I believe it's a gospel issue because the gospel calls us to repent of our sin. And if we stop saying what sin is, why do we have to repent of it then? You see what I mean? The gospel demands repentance of sin, but if we don't call sin what it is, how do we repent from it? I believe it is a gospel issue when it comes down to it. So we're picking up from last week. Paul is Paul went to Jerusalem to deliver a gift. The Holy Spirit warned him that trials were coming. Agabus the prophet told him, you're going to be bound. And he goes into Jerusalem and sure enough, there's a riot that starts in the temple. Someone falsely accuses him of bringing in a Gentile into the temple. And even though Paul didn't do that, the, the riot has started, the mob has formed, and they're beating him up. And who comes to his rescue but Rome? They stop the beating and say, let's get some order here. What's going on? And Paul says, can I address the crowd? And Rome says, the Roman uh, soldiers say, okay, go ahead. And then, then he gets up and he starts talking in Aramaic, which means none of the Romans know what he actually said, which is a little bit comical. And as he's speaking, as he's talking, uh, he gets to that point and he's saying, God told me to go to the Gentiles. And that just fires up everybody. And, and they're furious and they start the riot again and Rome has to carry him out of there. Now they put him on trial with um, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. And I'm sure the Romans are thinking, maybe finally we'll understand why this guy is in such hot water. Because they really don't know. Here's Paul on trial at the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin is a the Jewish ruling council. It's made up of scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and elders. You know, people that are part, you know, Paul is a Pharisee. Like these are his people, you know, that he came out of before he became a Christian. And now he's on trial. And this is, this is how it goes. This is verse 20. I'm uh, sorry, chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. 
Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest, for it's written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, and the assembly was divided, the Sadducees say. There is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul is under pressure. And he has to give an account. And so, the first word of verse 1 says that he stared at them. And actually, in Greek, the first word of that verse, we'll put the word up here, is atenizo. Atenizo means to look intently at something or someone. I mean, this is the look of a man on trial that is completely innocent, and he's just staring at them. And Luke puts it as the first word in the sentence to kind of point out the intensity of this, of Paul staring at the men who have come to put him on trial. And as he's staring at them, he says something that I find astonishing. He says, I have conducted myself before God with a clear conscience. And I look at that and I go, how can that be, Paul, that you've conducted yourself with a clear conscience up to this very day? I mean, you're the guy that locked Christians up under the name of Saul. You're the guy who stood there as Stephen was getting killed, as martyred for his faith. You approved of the deaths of Christians. So how can you say, how can the first words out of your mouth, the intensity of that moment, being on trial and staring at everybody and saying, I've got a clear conscience up to this very day. Like, don't you realize the sins you've committed? And that's led some pastors to say, and I was reading them this week, that, that Paul is saying that because he is forgiven of all those things. But I don't think that's his point, even though he is forgiven of all those things. I don't think that's the point he's making. I really believe he means what he says. I've had a clear conscience when I was Saul and hurting people, ripping families apart. I had a clear conscience over that. And I can tell you this day, I have a clear conscience about leaving that behind and proclaiming Jesus. I've got a clear conscience about that. 
There's something incredibly courageous about speaking in such a way. There's something bold about that. That I'm going to act according to conscience. Here's my point. It's a simple point. We need to keep a clear conscience. Keep a clear conscience. I think that is the way we interact with this culture. That my conscience is clear. And let me talk about conscience a little bit. Uh, what was the famous Disney movie? Is it Pinocchio? Where it says, always let your conscience be your guide? No. <laughs> here's, here's, no, it, it, there, there's truth there. There's truth there. Um, but, but here's the thing. Conscience is that little voice inside you that judges your actions. That little voice that, you know, kids, when your parents say, you need to, you know, do the dishes, and you're like, I don't want to, and then you, you, you stormed off in a huff or whatever, and, and then your little voice says, you shouldn't have done that. That's your conscience. And your conscience is saying, that wasn't a good idea. Punishment's coming, you know, but, you know, so whatever. Um, whatever that is. But there's a little voice inside us that says, this is right, and this is wrong, and it sits in judgment over our actions. That's your conscience. The question is, is your conscience infallible? Is it perfect? Is it a trustworthy standard of right and wrong? Can you always let your conscience be your guide? And in, in some sense I could say, well, you should be able to. But in another sense I can absolutely say, well, no, you can't. Because your conscience isn't necessarily always Honest. It's not actually always based in truth. Maybe you saw another news story over the last week of a group of teenagers who laughed as they saw a man drown in a retention pond. Shocking. And they have it on video. The laughter. Disgusting. And they didn't lift a finger to help them. What kind of conscience is that? Paul might say, well, it's a seared conscience. He said that to Timothy. Some people have a, a seared conscience. Any, anyone get in an accident and you have any scar tissue? You ever poke the scar tissue? You can't feel anything, you know? It, it's just, there's, no, there's no sensation there. That, that's a seared conscience. I, don't, I have a conscience, but I don't have a clear feeling of right and wrong like I should. That's a huge problem today. So you say, well then, okay, so Paul has a clear conscience. And I think what he's getting at is, when I was Saul, and I persecuted the church, I locked up families, I ripped parents away from their children, I approved of people getting killed for their faith in Jesus, I had a totally clear conscience. I thought what I was doing was absolutely correct. I was passionate, I was zealous, you knew me as a Pharisee of Pharisees. You knew how passionate I was for the law. He says later in his epistles, I was faultless as a Pharisee. Oh man, they knew it. And brilliantly, the point Paul is making is, you know how passionate I was about hating the church and hating Christians? Check out how passionate I am now about Christ and Christians. And ask yourself, what happened to that guy? 
think that's the brilliant point he's making. I keep a clear conscience at all times. I serve as passionately and as zealously as I possibly can, even if I'm totally wrong. I'm all in. I'm all in. Now, the question becomes then, well, I don't want a conscience like that that says this is what I'm supposed to do and then I do it and it ends up being totally wrong. How do I actually have a good conscience that I can let be my guide? How can I make that work? And let me suggest a couple ways we do that. A. Your conscience must be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Your conscience must be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, when you accept Jesus as Savior, say, Jesus, you died on the cross for me, I repent of my sins. I don't want to live in that old lifestyle. I want newness of life. The Holy Spirit comes into your life. And, one of, and sanctified means he, he cleans you up. He makes you holy. You know? It's like kids, like you've been playing outside all day in the mud and, and your mom says, get in the shower, you know? You've got to get cleaned up. The Holy Spirit comes in and he cleans you up and he cleans up your conscience. He's the soap for your conscience to make it the way it's supposed to be. Uh, where do I get that? I get that from Romans 9. Hopefully, I think we have it on the slides. Romans 9.1, Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. So in Paul's mind, the Holy Spirit and conscience work in unity with each other. That I can trust my conscience as it's being led by the Holy Spirit as it's been cleansed by the Holy Spirit. It can be my guide because the Holy Spirit is using it. It's using it. Now, that's not the only thing. I'd say there's another part to this. B, uh, you've got to feed your conscience something. Your conscience must be fed by the Word of God. What is the standard that you feed into your conscience? Because if you grow up, and your parents tell you that it's okay to lie in, in certain situations. You need to lie, cover up the truth. And if you think that's okay, you're going to do it, and you may have a totally clear conscience. Yeah, I think that's okay. I remember talking to a kid uh, in inner city Chicago who said, my parents told me to go to the store and take something and bring it back. You know, And that kid's going to grow up thinking, that is something that's okay to do. My conscience allows it. Because the parents have been feeding garbage into the conscience. But if you feed your conscience healthy food, if you feed your conscience the Bible, it will be, it will be a reliable guide on what's right and what's wrong. I think when it comes to the culture and Christianity, I think um, what we're seeing happen and with the issue I mentioned earlier, particularly with that issue, oh man, the church has to love people well. The church has to love people that have a same-sex orientation. We've got to do a great job at loving and yet not compromising on what God says in His Word about sin. We've got to, we've got to be able to do both. But what I see happening in the culture is our culture wants to 
cleanse a sin or sins. There's more. We want to cleanse something. And, and what they want to do is they want the church to say, okay, I'll be a part of that. And, and I think what it comes down to is the conscience is troubling them. I mean, there is a voice that says this is not right. The church says this is not right. And, and they know the church is saying that. And we need to silence that voice. What does Romans one thirty two say? They not only do these things, but they give approval to those who do them. That there is something driving this, and it's like, I want to have a clear conscience. So church, you've got to stop talking about this issue. Church, you've got to be silent. Stop talking about sin. I don't view it as sin. And, and that's what's coming from our culture. And there are some in the church that are putting, being pushed into the corner, and they don't have the courage to say, I love you. And that is sin. And Christ calls you to come out of it. And if you have that little inner voice saying, this is not good, this is not helpful, this is not a good thing in your life, listen to that little voice. It may just be the Holy Spirit is working on you right now. That's our message to the culture. Excuse me. Ever talk to a kid with no sense of sin. Sometimes I'm like, you know, you're doing VBS or you're doing Sunday school or you're doing whatever, kids' ministry. You know, and you're teaching the kids what sin is and, and, you, and you say, kids, what is sin? And, and little um, Sally says, sin is anything you say, think, or do that displeases God. That's the definition I grew, I grew up under, by the way, as, as a kid. I, I can quote it to this day. It's still in my mind. Uh, the best one I got in college was a one-word definition. comes out of the Bible. Sin is lawlessness. You know, that, that's easy too. And, th- and then you're teaching the kids and you're saying, now, okay, okay, can you give me an example of some sins? And they say lying, cheating, stealing, biting your brother. Oh, yeah, that's one. You know, uh, calling names, what, whatever it is. And, 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 and the kids say all these things. And then you say to little Johnny, Johnny, have you sinned? Johnny says, no. No, no, Johnny, come on. Um, Have you ever called your brother a name? No. Ever disobeyed your parents? No. Anything wrong? No. You know, and and, and it's like, I see this in adults too. Like people that pretend they don't have sin. You know? And it's like, they say, I'm a good moral person. I'm a good, I don't know about you Christians always talking about sin. You guys have a guilt complex. And, And I would say to that, I don't have a guilt complex. I have a Holy Spirit complex and He's working in me, you know? And He's telling me that I'm doing wrong things. And I've got to repent of those things. That's what it is. And I was reading a blogger yesterday and he said something profound. And I, I believe it's true. He said, uh, I've noticed that our culture has an acute sense of corporate sin. Like the sins of America. Racism, sexism, the inequalities of life. We are quick to call out corporate sin. What corporations have done, you know, to, to, to its employees and the people at the top and how they do things. We have a very well-developed sense of this communal sin and almost no recognition of private individual sin. And I'm like, I see that. I think that's a pretty 
pretty uh, in-depth statement, a, a pretty insightful statement. I need to know and be convicted that the problem in this country is me. And it's you. When you choose to disobey God, you choose sin. When you choose to follow something that's not truth, you're being deceived by Satan. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. Our battle's not against these opponents that have this ideology that we don't agree with and that march in a parade. That's not the enemy. The enemy is the deception of Satan. It's spiritual forces of evil. It's the lie. That's the enemy. That's what we fight. And we've got to have courage to fight that battle. And I believe courage comes from having a conscience that is sanctified by the Holy Spirit, grounded in the Word of God. I'm going to keep a clear conscience in this culture. Now, uh, next part, uh, Paul goes on, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there's some interesting things that happen after Paul talks about his conscience. Um, It says, At this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now, that word strike, I mean, it's not like, it's not like a slap, you know. I think when I first read this, I kind of thought like, how dare you, you know, uh, pull off the glove if they had those and, and, and hit Paul. But, but let me give you the word. You put the Greek word up here. It's uh, tupto. And it's to strike or to beat someone with or without a weapon. I mean, they could have had something in their hand and they, and they hit Paul with it. We're not told, but he is struck. I don't know if you've ever been hit struck strongly by somebody. But I bet you weren't happy if it happened. One time a kid came up behind me in the hallway and he hit me as hard as he could in my back. That's a cheap shot, by the way. Um, and I told him so. Uh, this is what Paul says. Paul said to him, God will strike you. God will give you a tough toe, you know. Uh, you whitewashed Wall, which, which is the idea of this is a really bad wall, it's a decaying wall, but you paint it over it, it looks good, but on the inside it's, it's not going to hold up, you know. Uh, you're a hypocrite, in other words. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding I to be struck. And then the people standing next to him said, how dare you insult God's high priest? And then Paul says, interestingly, he says, brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest, for it's written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. That should go on your Facebook today. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Oh my goodness, okay. Oh my goodness. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. Good thing we don't follow the law anymore, but Paul does. Um, Sorry, that was a joke. Okay. Um, Okay. Uh, People have a really hard time with this section of Acts. They, They, like... Some people say, well, how could Paul, who knows so much about the Jewish faith, he was a Pharisee, how could he not know who the high priest was? Some people say, aha, it must have been bad eyesight. Right? Some people say, no, 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 no. And I read, I read a really well-known scholar that said this. And I can, I can respect this, but I'm like, I don't agree with it. One guy said, um, Paul's being ironic. Kind of like, you just spoke to the high priest like that? You can't do that. And Paul says, I don't see a high priest in the room. Do you see a high priest? You know, it doesn't act very high priestly to me. You know, like, like, that, like that kind of thing. 
Like, if he would be acting like a high priest, I'd treat him like a high priest, but he's not. I don't think he's being ironic, even though, again, a lot of people really think that. I think this is a genuine, like, oops, I blew my top, you know? Like, Paul, if you're the guy who persecuted the church, breathing out murderous threats, I take it you got a little bit of a temper, you know? Like, just, just by, I mean, yeah, I've read the Paul of the epistles, and he's an awesome guy. But the Saul who locked people up and, and ripped fathers away from their children, he's not a nice guy. I don't want to meet him. I don't want to have him over to my parties, you know? Paul, what would you do today? I locked up a mom a couple blocks down, you know, worshiping Jesus. What would you do today? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I just mind my own business working in the field, not worshiping Jesus, you know. Uh, I, mean, I mean, he's a guy you don't want to get mad at you. And I think here he gets mad. I think that's easy. He's a human. I'm not trying to spiritualize it. I think he just got mad. And he said something stupid. I think it was also kind of prophetic because a few short years later, A.D. 66, that high priest, people hated that high priest, by the way. Ananias, he was loyal to Rome. He had people assassinated. He was brutal. He stole the tithe that was supposed to go to the priest and he kept it for himself. This is not a nice guy. So, when a Jewish revolt started in AD 66, Ananias knew his head was going to be next. He went out and he hid in an aqueduct. But they found him and they killed him. There's something prophetic about what Paul said. But I do think the apology is genuine. Like he quotes Torah. You know, let me tell you what the law says. Don't speak evil about the ruler of your people. I did that. I'm sorry. So you say, well then, why did Paul do it? I think he was mad. I wonder if maybe because this trial was kind of thrown together, it even kind of has a feeling like, like, like a farce, kind of like Jesus' trial, where you're like, what is going on? False accusations? What is this? That maybe the high priest didn't even have time to put on his robes of office. You know, maybe they just kind of threw it together, and there's this guy standing there, and he says this, and Paul's like, I don't know who that is. Maybe Paul had been gone from Jerusalem so long, he, didn't, he wasn't aware of what Ananias looked like. You've got to remember, he's traveling for years now, sharing the gospel. He may just not know. That's my take, at least. But he apologizes. He apologizes. And then he does something interesting next. He says, he takes advantage of the moment, and he, yeah, he says, I'm on trial because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the Pharisees that believe in resurrection, they get all hot under the collar and they're like, yeah, that's our guy. And the Sadducees say, no, we don't agree with resurrection. And, and they all get mad at each other and, and they start a big fight. And if you're Rome right now, you're like, what did we walk into? You know, I don't understand why this thing is such a big deal. And then Rome has to get him out of there again. He's done. He's done. And as he's done, he goes back. Actually, he's not done. He's going to go on many more trials, but... As he's taken out of there, it says in verse 11, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. It's a beautiful word. Testify about me. Take courage. You're going to testify about me. And in our culture, that's what God is calling you to. I know our culture is often given you to views, two standards, two positions, neither of them you want to be the bigot or to be the tolerant of person of everything. You've got to go somewhere in the middle and be courageous. And you know what? Sometimes you're going to have to give an answer 
and you're not going to say the right thing at that time. And you're going to feel like it was the wrong thing at least, you know. You're going to have to trust God's going to use your words. And even if you don't explain something well enough, even if you say something that's a little bit off, you can take a little bit of consolation because Paul did it too. Paul did it too. So be courageous. Speak your faith. Share clearly. And, and, and I really believe this is a wise move. When people want to get you bogged down in the details of this culture, I say go to the resurrection. That's what Paul did. Courageously bring them back to the issue. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, if Jesus is God, then we obey Him in all things. All things. We worship Him. I say take it back to the resurrection. Be clear. Bring people to that point of dealing with Jesus. Courageously share your faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this reminder. I thank you that you even say to us that you're with us to the end of the age. Jesus, you predicted that there would come a time, I believe it's in John, you said there would come a time when people would persecute and kill and think they were serving God. And in some sense that means their conscience is clear. They think they're doing the right thing. Oh Lord, may we stand firm in opposition. May we not compromise the faith. May we not compromise the gospel. May we not stray from the clarity of the Word of God. Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters in other countries who are facing a very real danger. A danger to life. A danger to their children. They are facing, truly facing the Saul's of this life who want to forcibly call them to recant, to give up the faith. We pray courage for them to stand firm. We recognize the trial for them is fiery, but that they have the shield of faith to extinguish the darts, the fiery darts of Satan. Strengthen them in their inner being, I pray. Would you strengthen this church that we could lovingly, compassionately, clearly proclaim the Word of God to those who need it in a culture where consciences are being seared? May you cultivate sensitivity to conscience in our neighbors who need Jesus. Help us go to them with the message of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.